Does that mark up the, on, the uh, online thing by moving the camera? Sorry about that. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all here this morning. Uh, so pleased that you are. What an epic journey it's been through uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, so much to continue to talk about, isn't there? And this morning, I think, is particularly helpful as we uh, reflect on who the Apostle Paul is and how important he is. Uh, but we're coming towards the end of 1 Corinthians, uh, all 16 chapters. We're in chapter 15. It feels like we're going to finish very quickly, but there's actually three talks in 1 Corinthians 15, so uh, it's a long chapter. Uh, so buckle in and let's, uh, let's pray together and ask God to help us as we listen to him speak to us in his word this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for uh, what we've just read and for what we've just heard in the kids' talk, the great reminder of what is most important, of first importance for us as Christians. Uh, and not just for us as Christians, but as first importance for our world. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to hear you well this morning and with humble hearts respond in trust and obedience. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can I say that uh, believing is like breathing. Believing is like breathing, right? You're trying to work out how on earth that's the case. But breathing is something that we constantly do but rarely think of. That is, until we go for a jog or walk up a set of stairs, uh, my, my favourite, you know, uh, Kuji stairs, uh, then our need for breathing is very clearly brought to our attention, right? Uh, we we recognise it then. And, and it can be similar with believing. We exercise our belief in all sorts of uh, things every day without even noticing it. So I, I hit the button on my remote control and I just believe that a picture will appear on my screen in front of me. Uh, or there are more, I guess, questionable beliefs, like believing that I can trust my mechanic, uh, or believing that I have the right approach to raising my children. Uh, it's pretty clear that we believe, we, we, we do believe things about all sorts of things, don't we? A little while uh, back, there was a question asked of university students in America, and the question was simply this, why should anyone believe anything at all? Uh, it's a good question because it causes us to think about why we believe what we do believe. Uh, let me just share with you one response from a student in North Carolina. He said this. He said, if you don't believe in anything at all, I'd guess you'd lead a fairly bleak existence. I think it's really important to believe in yourself. Once you know who you are and where you're going, these, these th so things seem to fall into place. Personally, I don't believe in God. I believe in people, and I believe in nature, and that's enough for me. I believe enough in myself to know that I will be as moral as I need to be for me without having to follow some other law, say the Ten Commandments. I also believe that other people will behave in a moral way for them because I don't believe that people are inherently evil. I think everybody's pretty decent, as a matter of fact, and this world, with all, the, all its isms and faults, is still a pretty cool place to be. It's not hard to agree, is it, with the uh, first sentence, life without belief would be bleak. Uh, but to, to dismiss belief in God and opt for belief in yourself, well, it's either trivialising the search for meaning or it's the highest form of arrogance. Uh, this is most likely the, uh, the happy hedonist who hasn't yet experienced any grief in his young life, whose religion is himself or herself. 
we've got every reason to ask the question, why should anyone believe what this student believes? What good reason is there, for example, for thinking that everyone is as moral as they need to be for themselves? Or thinking that others are as moral as they need to be for others? Is everyone really pretty decent? In one sense, you want to ask this student what universe they're living on. But believing something doesn't make it true, just as refusing to believe something doesn't make it false. It's actually worthwhile testing what we believe. Uh, does it stand up to scrutiny? Because what we believe, can I say, will determine, or at least influence, what we do. It'll influence how we live. And if we're wise, we'll investigate and we'll know the true facts about the things that we believe. If a clock is wrong, then we adjust it. It's just the sensible thing to do, right? And so as we come towards the end of this uh, particularly challenging book, Paul continues to be concerned about this particularly messy church in Corinth. Uh, chapter 15, as I've already said, is a long chapter that appears to be all about the resurrection, both Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. And it is about that, but it's not just about understanding the facts of the resurrection. It's much more about understanding the implications of the resurrection for the way that we live our lives as Christians. And so Paul is concerned about what the Corinthian church believes because he knows that what a person believes will have an impact on how they live. And some aspects of what the Corinthians believed, uh, especially regarding the resurrection, was causing serious problems within the church. And also it was causing them problems for the church's witness in the world. And so let's just have a read at what he says there. I'm going to pick it up from verse 1 of chapter 15. So if you've got your Bibles open, uh, or it should be on the screen, chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, Paul reminds his readers of the things that are of first importance to Christianity. What are they? Well, he says that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised to life again. And so Jesus' death and resurrection are always linked. They're, they're equally important. And the importance of his burial is that it proves his death. Uh, we normally try not to bury people who are still alive, right? So... Paul wants us to see that it was a real death and by his burial, a real resurrection. These are the facts that the Corinthians had come to believe in. Uh, it's the gospel message that Paul had preached to them. It was the gospel, Paul says, that was saving them. And so if they didn't hold fast to this gospel, this good news, then there was no salvation. But notice too that there's a purpose for Jesus' death and resurrection uh, Christ died, notice Paul adds, died for our sins. And Jesus' death and resurrection wasn't because he kind of ruffled a few religious feathers in his day and got himself in trouble. At the heart of the gospel is the understanding that Jesus died for our, that is for yours and for my, sins. 
In fact, if you look a bit further on at the end of the chapter in verse 56, Paul tells us that the sting of death is sin. Or back in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the Apostle Paul already also wrote, Paul says there that the wages of sin is death. Our sin is what brings death into our existence. Reminds me of the story of a family heading off on holidays. It was a warm, sunny day. Uh, the car windows were down. All of a sudden, a bee flies in uh, through one of the windows. It's buzzing around in the car. The problem is, though, is that their young daughter is in the back. She's extremely allergic to bee stings and could die within an hour if she's stung. She's screaming in the back of the car, and her dad pulls over to the side. He's reaching out trying to grab the bee and eventually he kind of coaxes it forward and manages to grab it in, up against the windscreen. He, he traps it and holds it in his hand. And as he holds it in his hand, he waits for the inevitable sting. And as expected, it does. And with the pain, he kind of lets it go loose in the car again. The girl starts to panic again. The father just says to her gently, Don't worry, honey. He's not going to sting you now. Look at my hand. Here's the sting in my hand. Jesus died for our sins. He's absorbed the sting of death. He's been paid its wage. And the certainty that he has drawn that sting is his resurrection. If sin hadn't been dealt with, then Jesus wouldn't have risen. And if Jesus hasn't risen, then we are all still in our sin, destined to face God's judgment and are without hope. You see, that's not the case. 2,000 years ago, a man died and he was raised to life again. And the importance of that fact is that he did it so that we too would be raised. Well, Paul, Paul begins by reminding them of the gospel that he had preached to them. The facts that they had actually believed in, that they were being saved by. And, and then he moves to support for his claim about the resurrection in verses 4 to 8. Look at what, let me just pick it up there from verse 4 again. Here what he says. He says to them, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is the apostle Peter, uh, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And notice that Paul gives uh, two forms of support for the reality of the resurrection here. Uh, first, he says, it was in accordance with the scriptures. And secondly, he appeared to people alive after his death. Now, the first is repeated in verses 3 and 4, that is Christ's resurrection, just like his death, was in accordance with Scripture. In other words, the death and resurrection of Jesus wasn't an afterthought. No, it was exactly what Scripture, what the Bible, had predicted. Now, one place we read about it is in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, a prophet around about a 1,000 years before Jesus. And the passage in Isaiah 53 speaks about the servant who would suffer for God's people. Let me just pick it up from verse 4 of Psalm 53. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that, that passage right from the very beginning has been understood by Christians to refer to Christ's suffering and dying for our sins. See, God loves us so much that he didn't think it too great a price to have his son die in our place so that we might be saved. The scriptures written hundreds of years before Christ indicate that Christ's death was part of God's plan to save humanity from the punishment that they deserved for rebelling against their maker. In fact, Jesus himself appears to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. You can read about it in Luke chapter 24. And he showed them how the scriptures had foretold everything that would happen to him. See, Jesus, Jesus wasn't something new in Scripture, just kind of appearing towards the end of it. He was the climax of it. Well, secondly, Paul points to a number of the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. Uh, his res- resurrection wasn't something that took place in a corner. Uh, Paul says, why do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, because people saw him. Uh, Jesus appeared to people, and not in a vision, not as Casper the friendly ghost. He spoke with them. He ate with them. He travelled with them. He reasoned with them that the scriptures had predicted that this would happen. All in all, there were probably 12 resurrection appearances over a 40-day period. And so Jesus was seen by people after his resurrection, and so the claims could actually be verified. And notice that one of the keys to his argument here is that Jesus, in fact, appeared to a group of more than 500 people at one time. Now, of course, anyone could make that kind of a claim this far down the track. But the point for Paul is at the time that he wrote his letter, most of these people who had seen the risen Jesus were actually still alive and they could verify or deny the claim. And so the facts of the resurrection were open to scrutiny. Paul's claim about the resurrection could be tested by uh, checking with those who had seen him alive. And of course, if the facts didn't check out, well, then people could prove the resurrection was a fraud and conclusively expose it as a sham. And so Christianity would have been dead in the water before it even got off the ground. See, Christians aren't afraid of their beliefs being held up to scrutiny. History has it that when they're seriously investigated, they come up very convincingly. The main problem is that too many people reject it without, without ever engaging in any serious scrutiny. That's the wisdom of the ostrich with its head in the sand. The death and resurrection of Jesus are gospel facts, Paul says, of first importance. It's great news. It wasn't pointless. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't futile. It was prophesied. It was purposeful. It was verified. And so the Corinthians, they evidently believed that Christ had been risen from the dead. That wasn't really their problem in believing that. Their problem was that some of them were denying that anyone else would, be, would rise from their deaths. And we'll address that point next week. But can I point out something that's easy to miss in this chapter? 
And Paul isn't actually trying to convince non-believers of the resurrection here. That's not what he's trying to do, so that they might be saved. Uh, he'll do that plenty of times, but in this case, he's not doing that. He's actually challenging the believers in the Corinthian church with the implications that Jesus has been risen from the dead. And we've got to keep reading each section of Corinthians in the context of the whole letter if we're going to understand it properly. But there are two things that Paul is concerned about here. Uh, two things that he's been concerned about right throughout this letter, really. Firstly, the first thing he's concerned about is that the Corinthians, the church's view of Paul as a genuine apostle. And then secondly, the lifestyle of a genuine Christian believer. What should that be like? Well, let's have a quick look at this last section. Paul has just pointed out that the risen Jesus appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, and the rest of the disciples in verse 5. Uh, then he appeared to all of the apostles, so the disciples basically became the apostles, those who had seen the resurrected Christ, um, and they'd been appointed as his messengers. We see that in verse 7. And then last of all, Paul says in verse 8, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And let's read on, let's pick it up from verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. And not often does Paul speak of himself more than he points people to Jesus. But in this passage, he does, you might have noticed. Uh, verse 1, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Verse 2, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Or we see it again down here in verse 8. He appeared also to me, Paul says. I am the least of the apostles. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I worked harder than any of them. See, Paul may be the least of the apostles, he may even be unworthy of being an apostle because he actually persecuted the church. But such is the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ that transforms human lives, always for the better. Paul, the unworthy, the least, is nonetheless an apostle of Jesus Christ. As Jesus appeared to the other, other apostles, so he appeared to Paul. See, the gospel that Paul preaches is the same gospel preached by all the apostles. The gospel they believed and by which they were saved was the gospel that Paul preached. And so to reject Paul, as they are in danger of doing, is to reject the authentic gospel of salvation. To reject Paul and the way that he lived out the gospel. Or you don't like something and Paul has to say, it's to end up believing in vain. We, we've seen again and again how worldly the Corinthian church actually had become. They weren't in, that impressed by Paul. He wasn't the best speaker. He actually had to work to support himself uh, to preach. He was always giving up his own rights and freedoms for others. He was weak and unimpressive and too restricted. They thought that being Christian meant the life of glory and freedom and wealth and spiritual power now. 
But Paul has laboured and struggled and made sacrifices so that people could hear about Jesus and so be saved. So that their sins could be forgiven. So that death could no longer sting. And so that they would be assured of the glory and joy of eternal life. You know, as Christians, our best days are absolutely ahead of us. Because of Jesus' resurrection, the day is coming when everything that causes us shame or fear or pain will be taken away. That's the day that we look forward to, that we set our minds on, that we store up treasure for. But as certain and as sure as that is, we're not there yet. We're still living in a broken world that needs to know the grace of God. And look again at what Paul says in verse 10. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God's grace, his favour towards Paul was not in vain. It wasn't wasted. It wasn't futile. What did God's grace mean for Paul? It meant sacrificial gospel ministry. It meant humbly putting the needs of others before his own so that they could be saved. It meant telling people about Jesus even when people hated him for it. It meant loving others deeply like Christ loves us. It meant hard work because the gospel is the only hope for our world. And Paul says to every Christian, he says to every one of us who have experienced God's grace, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's been saying it right throughout 1 Corinthians. Paul sets the pattern of Christian living. And as Christians, it's our confidence that Jesus has been raised and that we will therefore be raised that liberates us to live in incredibly self-sacrificing ways, like Paul did. If you love this world like God loves this world, it will mean sacrifice. You know, when I was a young Christian, I sometimes used to think that if Jesus didn't really die and rise again, then Christianity is just a complete waste of time. And of course it is. But when I understood God's grace to me, when I understood what God had done for me in sending Jesus to die on the cross for me, it was completely obvious that there was no other way to live in this world but to live for Jesus. And nothing else matters. Nothing else makes sense of our world. In fact, if you're living for this world rather than just living in this world and for heaven, then you're not living as a Christian. The resurrection changes our whole view of life, it changes everything. Well, there's something to think about, isn't there? Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you loved the world so much so that you would send your own son as a sacrifice for the sins of this world that we might be forgiven that you might grant us eternal life. Life forever, but more importantly, Father, life the full in relationship with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.